If you're back to your seats, then go ahead and get your Bibles, and in a moment we will get to Numbers chapter 16, so you may want to be opening to the book of Numbers, the fourth book in your Bible, chapter number 16. We'll get there in just a second. As we get started, can I, can I get us warmed up this morning by telling you a story? Let me tell you a story. There were a few guys that were involved in ministry. They were in support roles, actually. And these few guys actually were, they were all led by one particular guy. But for some reason, these guys weren't satisfied with what God gave them to do. They wanted more. In fact, the ringleader of the group, he wanted to be in charge of everybody. But the only way that that was going to happen was that first he had to take down the current existing leader. They saw this current existing leader as self-appointed and exalting himself over the others, and, well, they felt like they were just as good and just as qualified to be in charge. So they recruited a whole bunch of other people to agree with them against this leader and behind his back and waited for the right time that they could challenge him. Now, surprisingly, this existing leader, while grieved at the turn of events, he gave his challengers the opportunity to prove themselves. Not surprisingly, the rebels failed the test miserably, were swiftly removed from their positions, and together, all that aligned themselves with them were never to be seen again. Now, in a contemporary church application, such people, while accusing others of being self-appointed, will typically go out and appoint themselves as leaders and just start a new group. What's interesting is, is that this story could be told as though it happened in 2016, because there's nothing new under the sun. But today we're going to see that it happened back in 1440 B.C., and that's where we're at in number 16 today. You may be shocked to hear that back in the days of Moses and Israel in the wilderness, there were people that actually murmured and complained against Moses' leadership. I know, right? But some things, I guess, just never change. So if you haven't figured it out already, I put this statement in your notes. Murmuring is a theme in the book of Numbers. Because it's a necessary hurdle for growing Christian. You see, we find this issue of murmuring over and over and over, and maybe you'll be tired of hearing about it, and maybe you've been tired of reading about it, and I actually don't like talking about it. But God sees fit to put it in there over and over again. Well, certainly because it happened historically, but because He wants us to learn something. He wants us to know that we need to get past this. I get it. Back in the wilderness, in the Sinai Desert, circumstances were not that favorable. Life was tough back then. There were challenges daily. But the real problem was that they forgot that it was God that put them there. God led them out of Egypt with the intent to bring them into Canaan. But the only way to get from Egypt to Canaan was through the wilderness. They had to go through the wilderness. And that's where we all find ourselves at some point in our life with the Lord. He saved us out of the world with the intent that he would bring us into a life of victorious, mature Christianity not to mention to heaven. But there's only one way to get there. The only way you're going to get from the point of your salvation to the point where you are truly walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, a mature Christian believer, is you've got to spend some time in the wilderness. You've got to go through some trials so that you can learn how to trust God through those trials. And that has been the theme we've been seeing as we walk through the book of Numbers. We have to learn how to exercise our faith 
in order to be able to grow up to the point to live the mature, victorious Christian life that he intends for us. So, looking at number 16, and and we're going to look at the first 35 verses. It's a long passage. In just a minute, I'm going to read all of them. Hang with me. But I decided that probably the most appropriate title to give this message would be, Who Made You the Boss? Who Made You the Boss? And you know, that's a... That's a sentiment that has crossed all of our minds at some point in our lives, has it not? And for sure, when we are young adolescents and we're teenagers and we're coming up through our early 20s and and we see others in positions doing things that we think are dumb, we think, who made you the boss? The problem is we grow up to be adults and never seem to get past that. That's the problem. So, although this is a long story and it's going to take a minute or two to read through 35 verses, you can follow along, we have to go through it because this is also a very famous story in the Bible. This is very well known and you need to understand it. So, you follow along. I'm going to start in verse number 1 of chapter 16. Now, Korah, the son of Izar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, The sons of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of renown. And they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said unto them, You take too much upon you, seeing all the congregation are holy, every one of them. And the Lord is among them. Wherefore then lift ye up yourselves above the congregation of the Lord? And when Moses heard it, he fell upon his face. And he spake unto Korah and unto all his company, saying, Even tomorrow the Lord will show who are his and who is holy, and will cause him to come near unto him. Even him who he hath chosen will he cause to come near unto him. This do, take you censers, Korah, and all his company, and put fire therein, and put incense in them before the Lord tomorrow. And it shall be that the man whom the Lord doth choose, he shall be holy. You take too much upon you, you sons of Levi. And Moses said unto Korah, Here I pray you, you sons of Levi, seemeth it but a small thing unto you that the God of Israel hath separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself to do the service of the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister unto them. And he hath brought thee near to him and all thy brethren, the sons of Levi, with thee. And seek ye the priesthood also? For which cause both thou and all thy company are gathered together against the Lord? And what is Aaron that you murmur against him? And Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, which said, We will not come up. Is it a small thing that thou hast brought us up out of the land that floweth with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness, except thou makest thyself altogether a prince over us? Moreover, thou hast not brought us into the land that floweth with milk and honey or given us inheritance of the fields of the vineyards? Wilt thou put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. And Moses was very wroth. And he said unto the Lord, Respect not thou their offering. I have not taken one ass from them, neither have I hurt one of them. And Moses said unto Korah, Be thou and all thy company before the Lord, thou and they and Aaron tomorrow. And take every man his censer and put incense in them, and bring ye before the Lord every man his censer, two hundred and fifty censers. Thou also and Aaron, each of you his censer. And they took every man his censer and put fire in them and laid incense thereon and stood in the door of the tabernacle of the congregation with Moses and Aaron. And Korah gathered all the congregation against them under the the door of the tabernacle of the congregation and the glory of the Lord appeared unto all the congregation. And the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell upon their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin And wilt thou be wroth with all the congregation? And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the congregation, saying, Get you up from about the tabernacle of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And Moses went up, rose up, and went unto Dathan and Abiram, and the the elders that followed him. And he spake unto the congregation, saying, Depart, I pray you, from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest ye be consumed in all their sins. 
So they got up from the tabernacle of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram on every side. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood in the door of their tents and their wives and their sons and their little children. And Moses said, Hereby ye shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, for I have not done them of mine own mind. If these men die the common death of all men, or if they be visited after the visitation of all men, then the Lord hath not sent me. But if the Lord make a new thing, and the earth open up her mouth, and swallow them up with all that appertain unto them, and they go down quick into the pit, then ye shall understand that these men have provoked the Lord. And it came to pass, as he had made an end of speaking all these words, that the ground clave asunder that was under them, and the earth opened up her mouth and swallowed them up, and their houses, and all the men that appertained unto Korah, and all their goods. They and all that appertained to them went down alive into the pit, and the earth closed upon them, and they perished from among the congregation. And all Israel that were round about them fled at the cry of them, for they said, Lest the earth swallow us up also. And there came out a fire from the Lord and consumed the 250 men that offered incense. Now, thanks for sticking with me. That was a long passage of Scripture, and we had to get the whole story out so you know where we're going while we're on our way to get there. But this is a really important passage of scripture so before we jump into it let's just pray ask the lord to bless our study and uh, let's start to make sense of it so heavenly father as we look at this passage of scripture lord it is an amazing story and while we believe and understand that you recorded it for us accurately that this is not just some parable this is not just some allegory this is not just symbolic this literally happened this is an event of history and you have given it to us to teach us and to remind us of some very, very important issues. So that's my prayer, that you would open up our hearts and minds to understand the lesson or lessons that you need for each of us to get. Lord, there's many of us listening today, and so everybody has their own unique application of where they're at. And I pray that, as only you can do, the Holy Spirit will make that specific application to the heart and circumstance of each hearer today. And I pray that we'd surrender it all to you by the time we're done. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, well, we're going to start where they start, and that's what the first point of our message. We're going to call that the complaint. It starts with complaining. So in the very first verse, verse number one, we're introduced to this fellow named Korah. And we see that Korah is a Levite. He's of the tribe of Levi, but he's not a priest. In fact, what you need to understand, if you don't understand, is that all priests are Levites, but not all Levites are priests. The priests are a subset within the group of the tribe of Levi. It says that he's of the family of Kohath. Okay, now we studied this earlier when we were back in chapter number 3, if you happen to remember, that the Kohathites were given the specific ministry task to transport all of the furniture of the tabernacle. So they transported the Ark of the Covenant and all of the altars and the candlestick and all of the vessels. That was the job of the family of Kohath. Now in verse number 2, we see that Korah rallied 250 famous men. They're called men of renown. These were people who were princes, they were leaders, they were well known among the people. And it says that they rose up, and here's the phrase, they rose up before Moses. Now don't just pass that over real quick. Don't just go and say, well, they, they went to talk to Moses. Well, this idea of being before Moses is used over and over again in the scriptures with the specific idea of to be before him, meant in the context, in defiance of him. For example, you can go back to Genesis chapter 10 and verse number 9, where there's another famous evil character named Nimrod. And when it introduces Nimrod in Genesis chapter 10, it says that he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. When this event of Korah is referenced in other places in the Bible, for example, it's referenced in the little book of Jude at the end of your Bible, and it only has one chapter. So in Jude, verse number 11, it talks about the gainsaying of Korah. The gainsaying. 
And literally that word gainsaying means to create strife, to create a contradiction, to be in defiance. That's what it means. In fact, to get further understanding of gainsaying, we'll go to Titus chapter 1 and verse number 9 where it says, Holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convince the gainsayers, those that defiantly oppose the truth. It goes on in verse 10, For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, specially they of the circumcision. Then notice what it says in verse 11, Whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not, Oh, and they have a motive for filthy lucre's sake. For filthy lucre's sake. So gainsayers have bad doctrine. Their speech destroys people. And they're in it with a selfish motive. They're in it with a selfish motive. Now we have a little bit of a better idea of who Korah really is and what he's really all about in this story. It says very specifically in verse number 3, he spoke against Moses and against Aaron. And if you've been with us in this study, by now you've already figured out that that means by extension they spoke against the Lord. They spoke against the Lord. Now this uprising was not done alone. He not only gathered these 250 leaders, he also had two other specific named men, Dathan and Abiram. Now, Dathan and Abiram were not Levites. They were of the tribe of Reuben. And their complaints were recorded for us in verses 12, 13, and 14. But if they're not Levites, how exactly did they get drawn into this debate? How exactly did Dathan and Abiram join in with Korah to argue with Moses and Aaron? Well, a study of the scriptures, and it doesn't take lo that long to do it. I'll leave it to you to do it. But what you'll find is the different tribes of Israel encamped about the four sides of the tabernacle out in the wilderness, and that the tribe of Levi and the tribe of Reuben were both situated on the south side of the tabernacle. What does that mean? That means that they had proximity. That means when Korah stood up and began to work the crowd, when Korah began to murmur among the people before they ever murmured before Moses, they were in the neighborhood. They were within earshot. They were around to hear what Korah was saying. Listen, don't kid yourselves, y'all. There is always one ringleader. Always. He's the voice. God refers to this event several times in Scripture. It's so important. God refers to this event several times in Scripture, and every time God refers back to this event, he only refers to Korah. He doesn't refer to Dathan and Abiram. For example, Numbers 27, verse 3, Our father died in the wilderness, and he was not in the company of them that gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah. I already read Jude 11. It talks about the gainsaying of Korah. It doesn't say the gainsaying of Dathan and Abiram. It says the gainsaying of Korah. But let's talk a little bit about these other two guys, because that's important too. Dathan and Abiram, they were what you might consider, well, I mean, just to throw it out there, just run-of-the-mill church members. I mean, they didn't have, at least it's not recorded, that they had any specific ministry assigned to them. They were just a part of the crowd. They were part of the congregation. And as such, they had a hard time seeing and understanding God's hand behind the scenes of what was going on in front of the scenes. You see, they accused Moses of taking them out of the land that flowed with milk and honey, which, if you'll remember back to the last couple of chapters, after the spies went in and brought back an evil report, it actually was God who told Moses to get them out of there lest they die at the hands of their enemies because of their unbelief. But they didn't see that. You see, they accused Moses of taking them back to the wilderness to die, when actually it was God who told Moses to take them back to the wilderness so that they would live longer. 
they accuse Moses of making himself a prince over them when God clearly called Moses to do that job. Footnote, Moses didn't even want that job. And they accuse Moses of not coming through on the promise to enter the land and to get their inheritances, not realizing that the full realization of the promises of God and the inheritance, well, that takes time. That takes time. You see, what they suffered from was what we read in John chapter 7 and verse 24 where it says, Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. And what Dathan and Abiram were guilty of is they just saw the circumstances. They just saw some of the movement. They just saw some of the difficulty. And they immediately began to judge just based on that. And they couldn't seem to see the hand of God working through all of those things. Do you ever notice how quick people are to speak against others? and yet seem to have no real idea of the backstory, To have no real idea of what God might be doing in the midst of this? It's because, well, maybe. Maybe they were blinded by lust for their own position of power as well. I mean, they were of the tribe of Reuben, and Reuben was the firstborn male child to Jacob. And the firstborn son typically got a bigger piece of the pie. Maybe that was part of their motivation. Interestingly, you can study the names of people in the Bible and what those names mean, and you can learn some things about their character. The name Dathan, if you were to translate it, means, you ready? Fountain of judgment. Abiram. Some would say it means renowned or famous father. Others would translate it exalted one. I, I think these guys thought pretty highly of themselves. And as a result, by extension, began to think poorly of others. So the issue that they present to Moses at this time was basically this. So go back to verse 3, and by Korah and those that were with Korah, they made statements like this. Why do you lift yourself up over us? You see the emphasis? Why, why are you doing that yourself, Moses? They say to him, you take too much upon you. You're self-appointing. But the idea is, is that, okay, Moses set himself up as the leader of the crowd. I honestly can't imagine why he would have wanted to do that. The record shows he didn't want to do that. This was no easy task. A life full of problems and no apparent visible rewards for it. Then you fast forward down to verse 13 where Dathan and Abiram start to air some of their concerns and they say similar statements where they say things like, you brought us out here to kill us. You, obviously, right, just want to make yourself a prince over us. So that begs the question, does God appoint leaders? Or do men appoint themselves? Well, to be fair, the real answer is both. <laughs> there are times, certainly, ideally, certainly, in many cases, certainly, God is the one who calls out and appoints men in positions of leadership for a reason, for a purpose. Yet, there are occasions Certainly, where carnal men also appoint themselves. It happens. So, maybe we should ask it this way, and this is in your notes. Is leadership over God's people a calling, or is it a career? 
Think about that. Is leadership over God's people a calling or is it a career? You see, if the leader behaves as if it's just a career, well, then maybe some of these complaints are valid. Right? I mean, if that's the way he's living, he'll typically behave in such a way that he will use people in order to gain advantage over them. That happens, sadly. We read about such things, for example, in the third little epistle of John, again, one chapter, the ninth verse, about a man named Diotrephes. It says, I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, notice who he is, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. So John's writing, and as he's writing, he's like, oh yeah, there's a guy in your midst. He'll have nothing to do with us. John is legitimately proven to be one of the original 12 apostles, right? And Diotrephes says, I, no, I'm not, I'm not receiving him. Why? Because Diotrephes wanted to be in charge. Diotrephes wanted to appoint himself as being in charge. In fact, there's a whole category of people that the Lord talks about. We see it in Revelation 2 and verse number 6 where he talks to the church in Ephesus and he talks about all the different things that they did right and wrong. And one of the things that he liked about the church in Ephesus in verse 6, but this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Jesus says, which I also hate. Now, a lot of you already know this, but who are the Nicolaitans? Well, that word Nicolaitan is a compound word that's comprised of two elements. The first element means to conquer, and the second element means the common man. So the Nicolaitans were people who set themselves up as a priest class to rule over and to conquer the laity, the common man. And Jesus says, when people do that, I hate it. I hate it. In fact, you can read further down in Revelation 2, and not only do they have the deeds of the Nicolaitans, it talks about they actually have a doctrine. They make a doctrine of it. They make a doctrine of it. So if it's a career, well, then these are the issues you can anticipate. But if the leader understands that it's a calling on his life, well, then he'll humbly receive all of the opposition and deal with it as a loving parent. That's what Moses did over and over and over. They treated him terribly. And he interceded for them and prayed for them and endured them. We'll see in a minute where Moses, for the first time recorded in Scripture, gets mad. Okay? But up until now, it says that he was the most meek man on the earth. He kept taking it and taking it and taking it. Because he knew this wasn't just a job. This was God's calling on his life. It was put upon him to carry out this task in the name of the Lord. And that's the big distinction. And indeed, if it is indeed a calling, I shouldn't have to say it, but I'm going to say it, who is doing the calling? Well, God is doing the calling. Well, Israel, you know, they can't seem to get it right. So, to be fair, not all of Israel in this story. It really is just these three men and the 250 that were with them. They continue to complain. But that is what we see over and over and over again in the book of Numbers, is it not? Not just in Numbers and other places, but certainly in this book. Why, why has the Lord left so many records of these things? For example, Numbers chapter 12, when we studied that, we saw that they complained about Moses as God's prophet. In Numbers chapter 14, we saw that they complained to Moses about God's promise. They complained about the land. They said it was a bad land, evil. Here in Numbers 16, they complained to Moses about God's priesthood. And if you want to jot something down and go look it up later on your own time in 2 Samuel Chapter 15, there's the story of a man named Absalom, one of the sons of King David, and he complained about David 
being the king. Let me just talk about Absalom for a second. Do you realize what Absalom did? If you go back to 2 Samuel and read a few chapters and get the whole story about Absalom, he was David's son. He was offended for not getting the respect and the treatment that he felt that he deserved as the son of David and ultimately divided away and began to work the crowd literally outside the gates of the city and he began to start this murmuring and complaining among the people pointing out to the people all the things that David wasn't doing right and while he was doing that, he would point out to them, if I were king, I would fix all these things. If I were king, I'd have time to deal with your problems. Sounds a little like politicians. If I were in charge, things would be better. And Absalom gained a following. Oh, and, oh, and you know what he did? He appointed himself to be king. He went to another city, blew some trumpets, and said, I am king. in stark contradiction to his father, David, who before he was made the king officially, served under a legitimately evil king, Saul, who tried to kill him, over, threw javelins at him, sent armies after him, and through it all, David was totally submissive to the point where he would say over and over again, I will not do anything to touch the Lord's anointed. Because he saw God having appointed Saul as king even if he didn't agree with him, even if Saul was doing a bad job. Good political advice, by the way. no matter who it is. Maybe, just maybe, that's one of the big reasons why David got promoted to be king. But I want you to notice, these records of the complaints through the book of Numbers and including Absalom, we have these complaints against leadership in the areas of a prophet, a priest, and a king. Who does that remind you of? Well, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. So you need to understand this. If leaders are appointed by God, then God is most offended when we complain against them. After all, y'all who are part of this church, you know by now the theme of all of the Bible is phrased a little differently by different people. The theme of all of the Bible is not love, it's not even salvation. Sometimes we talk about it in the context of a king or a kingdom. I like to phrase it this way. The theme of all of God's revelation to you is authority. It's God's authority. It's the title of the message. Who's the boss? Who, God wants to know your answer to the question, who's really in charge of your life? The Lord wants to know, am I in charge of your life? Or are you in charge of your own life? You see, that is the ultimate scarlet thread that works its way all the way through the Bible. It is the message God is trying to get across. And if he delegates authority to appointed leaders, and people rebel against that, by extension, most clearly, God is offended. But before we move on to the next point, I, let me frame a question for you to consider. Just consider this. Why are these people really complaining? I mean, why are they really complaining? Just to be in charge? Well, let's just give them the benefit of the doubt. Let's say maybe not. You know what I think? I think the reason why, if not these, many people find themselves murmuring, complaining against established leadership is because they just don't really like the direction that's being given. 
they're sitting and they're seeing a direction that's being put forth and they, they just don't like it. They might not mind being led if the leaders would just lead in the direction I want to go. But, but if that's the case, is it? Is it really following then? You see, the Lord has got this thing rigged. You can't be tested to see how faithful of a follower you are unless there's a time that you're being asked to follow in a direction you don't like. Don't you understand that? And some of us who are called, I was going to use the word saddled with, the requirement and the responsibility to give direction do to the best of our ability and the leading of the Lord present to you what we believe the Lord is doing to continue to move us forward? Well, I think there's a divine hand behind it that occasionally directs us as a body of believers in directions that some, if not many of you at times, just don't like or agree with. Because it's your wilderness. Because it's your book of numbers. Because it's time for you to learn the lesson. And that's what we see. Okay, let's go to the next one. Number two, the confirmation. So verse four, Moses heard it. He fell upon his face. He's been here before. He's trying to raise children, but they're not getting it. He shows them a lot of grace. He actually gives Korah a chance to prove himself and to prove his theory. So in verse 5, he spake unto Korah, that's who he's speaking to, and to all his company, saying, these are the Levites, even tomorrow the Lord will show who are his and who is holy and will cause him to come near unto him, even him whom he hath chosen will he cause to come near unto him. Moses' point is, God is the one who has done the choosing, not me. So God will be the one himself who will confirm who he has appointed and who he's appointed to carry out specifically the position of the priesthood. In other words, Moses is saying to them, well, you want to be a priest, do you? You want to be a priest? Okay. Let's craft a, a test for you to see what kind of priest you would be. So verses 6 and 7, This do take you censers, Korah, and all his company, and put fire therein, and put incense in them before the Lord tomorrow, and it shall be that the man whom the Lord doth choose, he shall be holy. Ye take too much upon you, ye sons of Levi. I, I think I heard that before. Back in verse 3, Korah's complaining against Moses and against Aaron and said unto them, You take too much upon you. Moses and Aaron, putting yourself up over all the top of us. And Moses says, okay, let's, let's give you guys a chance. You're going you're gonna to do some priestly stuff. And he just throws this little zinger out. You take too much upon you, sons of Levi. And if you can't hear that heavenly sarcasm, you're just not listening. Because Moses, I mean, just said, oh, by the way, <laughs> you got to love it. But Moses has got this thing figured out. He's got an ace up his sleeve. He knows what God does to people who offer strange fire. Remember in Numbers chapter 3 and verse number 4, Nadab and Abihu died before the Lord when they offered strange fire before the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. You know, the story is somewhat similar to the story of the prophet Elijah when he was up on Mount Carmel. You'll find that in 1 Kings chapter 18. There were 450 prophets of Baal, and they were challenging God. And Elijah provided them the opportunity, a test of service, where he says, you prepare a sacrifice before your God, and I'll do the same. And let's see whose God answers. At the end of the day, it was the one who responds by fire is the, is the true God. 
You know what we learn from all of that? We learn that the true test of God's man is proven in actually performing the work required acceptably. That's what we see. You see, it's one thing to sit back and judge your brother's work. It's quite another to get up and try and do it yourself. And if you did, could you do it acceptably before the Lord? Could you handle all the pressures of ministry? Could you better manage millions of complaining adults who are never satisfied? Even in the midst of God doing visible signs and wonders? You see, leadership assignments are not nearly as glamorous as you might think. And the men God are looking for, well, generally, those are guys who don't want it. Those are generally guys who don't want it. In fact, if anybody's ever listening to this message and they happen to find themselves a part or they know somebody who's a part of a church pulpit committee, a pastoral search committee, uh, that's good advice for a church pastoral search committee. If a guy's just dying to take the spot, you might want to just give her a little time. But if a guy's like, I don't know, I mean, I don't know if I don't really want to do this, but if that's what the Lord has, maybe oh, that's the guy you ought to pay attention to. That's free. Another important lesson of this story, God wants us to be content with the work that he has given us. He wants us to be content with what he's given us to do. So he goes on in verse 9, Seemeth it but a small thing unto you that the God of Israel hath separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself to do the service of the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister unto them. In other words, these were the Kohathites. Their job in helping to set up the tabernacle was a critically important job, and he is saying, do you think that that job, does it seem to be too small for you? And he hath brought thee near to him, and all thy brethren, the sons of Levi, with thee. And seek ye the priesthood also? That wasn't given to you. For which cause? Which cause? The cause of them seeking the priesthood also, something God did not give them. For which cause? Both thou and all thy company are gathered together against the Lord. You're seeking a ministry that was not given to you. Again, is just rebellion against the authority that God has set in place. Paul communicates the same principle in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 17, where he says, And say to Archippus, Take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord, that thou fulfill it. Archippus had to be careful that he didn't let himself get carried away and pretend to take on himself the work that was never given to him. And Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, reminds him to do that. You pay attention to the work God gave you, and you take care of that, and you'll be just fine. You see, Kor's gainsaying was motivated by his desire for more personal authority over God's people than God was willing to give him, which at the end of the day is an attack on God's authority. Paul, again, in 1 Timothy 6, we have a similar situation. Verse 3, if any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and of the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. From such withdraw thyself. But... Godliness, here it is, with contentment. Now that, that's great gain. That's great gain. So back to number 16 and verse 15. Moses was very wroth, and he said unto the Lord, Respect not thou their offering. He's like, I, he's, it's like he's crossed the line. I, I've had enough. 
I don't deserve this. And that's what he says. I've not taken one ass from them, neither have I hurt one of them. What have I done to deserve this? Well, he didn't deserve it. So then the test commences, and they begin to take the censers and the fire and to do all that. And when they do, in verse 19, the Lord showed up. The glory of the Lord appeared unto all the congregation. And well, we read it already, so you know the results. And that's our third point, the condemnation. The condemnation. God's judgment of this group is swift, severe, oh, and miraculous. Verse 28, Moses said, Hereby ye shall know that the Lord hath sent me to do all these works, for I have not done them of mine own mind. If these men die the common death of all men, or if they be visited after the visitation of all men, then the Lord hath not sent me. Just so that you know it's God involved, God's going to do a God thing. He's going to do something that I couldn't possibly do. In other words, what he's saying is, um, you're about to die. But if the manner in which you're about to die comes because of old age, if you live a long life and eventually die, well, I don't get credit for that. That's, 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 I'm wrong. Then I'm not God's man. But, verse 30, if the Lord make a new thing, <laughs> and that's what we see in this chapter, something God had never done before, and the earth open up her mouth and swallow them up with all that <coughs> appertain unto them, and they go down quick, that word means alive, into the pit, then you shall understand that these men have provoked the Lord. And once again, similar to Elijah on Mount Carmel, the false prophets, if you remember the story, they make a lot of noise and they're out there and they're dancing and shouting and screaming and cutting themselves and trying to do all this stuff. But at the end of all that effort, it was just a big nothing burger. But Elijah gets up and he does the same thing and boom, the fire came down. Unlike Elijah, in the case of Korah, God didn't send the fire down to the people. He sent the people down to the fire. He didn't send the fire down to the people. There was already fire in the center of the earth. And he sent the people down to the fire. Verse 31, it came to pass that he made an end of speaking all these words, that the ground clave asunder that was under them, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up in their houses and all the men that appertained unto Korah and all their goods. They and all that appertained unto them went down alive, the meaning of the word quick, into the pit. And the earth closed upon them and they perished from among the congregation. They went alive straight to hell because hell is in the center of the earth. Scientists know that. The earth has a burning core. That's where hell is, Ezekiel 31, 16. I made the nations to shake at the sound of his fall when I cast him down to hell with them that descend into the pit. And all the trees of Eden, the choicest and best of Lebanon, all that drink water shall be comforted in the nether parts, the lower parts of the earth. Ezekiel 32, 18, son of man, Wail for the multitude of Egypt and cast them down, even her and the daughters of the famous nations, unto the nether parts of the earth, with them that go down to the pit. Whom dost thou pass in beauty? Go down and be thou laid with the uncircumcised, with the pagans, with the unbelievers. And since God, only God, has the monopoly on making these decisions, they drew that card. Go to hell. Go directly to hell. Don't pass go. Don't collect $200. They went down there alive. With everybody who rejects God's mediator, 1 Timothy 2, 5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Because in this story, Moses is a type and a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
But before that miraculous event happened, God showed again his grace and his mercy toward the multitude. So he tells Moses to go tell all the people. Before that happened, verse 21, separate yourselves from among the congregation because I'm going to consume them in just a moment. You want to save your skin, you get away from them now. Have you ever noticed that God divides more than he unites? And that God divides before he unites? Have you ever noticed that? Listen, he divides the light from the darkness. He divided Israel from the nations. Among the nations, he divided the sheep from the goats. He divides the wheat from the chaff. He divides the holy from the profane. He divides the saved from the lost. And only after dividing the holy from the profane does he desire unity among the holy. Only then. You see, the world's got it all wrong, right? The world system is trying to force you to unite with social deviants and false teachers. And if you don't unite with them, well, you're the problem. So you see, this principle still holds true today, y'all. 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 14, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. You've seen that before. The whole passage is about that. Let's pull out verse 17. Wherefore, come out from among them. Well, that sounds a lot like verse 21 of, of number 16. Come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I'll receive you. Oh, it goes deeper than that. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourself from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition that you've received of us. It goes on in verse 14 and says, And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. Oh, it goes deeper than that. 2 Timothy 3, a passage we're probably mostly all familiar with, verses, first five verses. Know this also, that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, and they're religious having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. What are you supposed to do with them from such turn away? Separate yourselves. That's what he's saying. Romans 16, 17. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them. Why? For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. Why does God seem to remind us about this issue over and over and over again? Well, it's very simple. He doesn't want you to be judged with the unrighteous. He doesn't want you to be guilty by association. He loves you. They've made their bed. You don't have to lie in it. Back to Numbers 16, 26, and he spake to the congregation saying, Depart, I pray you from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be consumed in all their sins. So they got up the tabernacle of Korah, Dathan and Abiram every side. Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the door of the tents, and their wives and their sons and their children. You see, this idea of separation from unrighteousness, that's an act of love. That's God loving you. Now, they go alive, straight down into hell, the earth closed itself back up. Everybody ran for fear. They were like, oh, maybe it'll swallow us up too. We're out of here. You, you'd think that this amazing event would have got the attention of these Israelites, wouldn't you? You'd think if it was you, you'd be like, got it. Right? I mean, you'd think that. You'd think that at least immediately thereafter for a while, they'd straighten up and fly right, right? You'd be wrong. <laughs> we didn't read it, but down in verse 41, 
Check it out. But on the morrow, the morrow, all the congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron, saying, Ye have killed the people of the Lord. <laughs> Emoji, right? I mean, how? How can I? I can't, I can't do that. Who? So God sends a plague in verse 49. They, they're all about to die. God's like, I'm done. Boom, plague. Moses, again, they start praying for him. And by the time it's all done, 14,700 of them died in the plague. Listen, this is a serious issue. Can I remind you of 1 Timothy 5, 19 and 20? Against an elder, receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. Verse 20. Them that sin, rebuke before all, that others also may fear. Them that sin. Okay, so you have an elder that's accused of wrongdoing, and you have enough witnesses to consider the matter, and if indeed he is guilty, then... He should be rebuked before all so that everybody realizes the gravity of this position. But them that sin might also apply to the false accusers. Because them that have now sinned are the ones who falsely accuse. That's why I said you better be careful. Before you jump into that arena, you better be careful. The false accusers then are to be removed. I want you to remember something. This is the last thing in your notes. God's delegated authority is still God's authority. God's delegated authority is still God's authority. And since authority is the theme of the entire Bible, and since complaining, especially about God's delegated authority, seems to be a theme in the book of Numbers, and it is. And since Numbers represents the period of our spiritual journey, where we must learn key lessons if we're ever going to grow up and enjoy the bounty of the promised land of full spiritual maturity. Listen, in other words, if you never learn, if you will never learn to be content following the delegated authority structure that God has established, oh, don't kid yourself, friends. He will test you. He will test you. And there are three specific, clearly ordained areas of God's delegated authority. Civil government, the family, and the local church. If you can never learn to be content following the delegated authority structure that God has established then you will never grow up spiritually, you will never enter the promised land, and you will die in the wilderness of self-centered opinions. Today, there's a lot of rebellion, there's a lot of self-appointing, there's a lot of splintering, there's a lot of divisions, and it seems like everybody, not everybody, it seems like many such people get away with it. I mean... I haven't heard lately of the ground opening up and swallowing people up and closing up again. But a little further down in 1 Timothy 5, in verse 24, it says this. Some men's sins are open beforehand, going before to judgment. But some men, they follow after. You might think you got away with it. You might think you skated around it. It ain't over till it's over. And there will be, let me tell you, a test of fire. Now, in a local church context, we may be dealing with somebody who is a born-again believer who just got very carnal and became a gainsayer. That test of fire will not be going to hell because your salvation is secure. But if you're a Christian and find yourself falling to this temptation, there's still fire for you. It's at the judgment seat of Christ. 
and all of your works will be tried and consumed in a minute. Just, I mean, I mean, just that quick. You could almost say your works are offered to God as in a censer to be rejected, to be rejected. You don't want to be that guy. You don't want to be that lady. If that discontent has been stirring in you, will you get it right today? It's not about me. It's not about any human being. It's about you and your submission to God and his delegated authority. That's the way that he set it up. It's not about this church. It's not about any of those things. You might have a problem with the government and you've, you've overstepped your bounds. You may have a problem with your family and you've overstepped your bounds. You may have a problem with me. I don't know. I'm not picking. I don't, I'm not aware of it. <laughs> Maybe you're still just working the crowd and haven't said anything yet. I don't know. It's not like it hadn't happened before. So you just, I'm just telling you, you don't want to be that guy. You don't want to. Or maybe you're just here and you're like, man, this is, this is kind of crazy. I just visited church today. <laughs> Please come back next week. <laughs> we'll move on. Um, but maybe you don't know that you know the Lord. Let me just tell you something. His mercy is extended to you. It is. And he offers grace and forgiveness to you. Let's pray together.